This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Um, I'm going to talk about motor social skill learning, but I really want to talk, uh, jumping right into it, into sort of uh, present initially this sort of high-level conceptual notion about what I'm going to talk about. And for that high-level conceptual notion, I'm going to show this slide of an amoeba. So why am I showing a slide of an amoeba? I'm showing a slide of an amoeba because we, we learn, we all learned in like seventh grade biology or so, that the amoeba basically does one of two things, right? So here's this living creature, distinct from non-living creatures, obviously very different from ourselves, but it basically, but, there's, but there are core similarities that I want to emphasize, because the amoeba basically does one of two things. It, it senses a toxic substance in the environment and extends a pseudopod in the other direction, moving away from the toxic substance, or it senses a, a, a food substance in the environment and sends a pseudopod and that direction and envelops the food substance. And we learned that amoeba basically does these two things. And this core thing of this, this perceptual motor coupling, this sensory motor coupling, and this ability to dynamically interact with the world around, in this case, the amoeba and us, is what really distinguishes life from inanimate, non-living things. This lectern has no ability to dynamically interact with the environment. But this amoeba does. And we and all living creatures are basically tied to this perception-action coupling. And this is what drives and underlies our everyday behavior, is that ability to perceive what's in the environment and then act upon what's in the environment. And now, obviously, what we are able to do beyond the amoeba is we're able to engage in much more complex behavior. And part of that is that we're able to map um, time, f- uh, future in the past, to a much greater extent than the amoeba does, and therefore develop much more complex um, uh, patterns of behavior. And our, the system that by which we do this sensory um, action coupling is obviously much more complex, and even this sort of simplest, simplistic gray, black and white um, slide demonstrates it, that, that we have this sort of um, perceptual system um, at least within the cerebral cortex, more in the back of the brain, and this sort of action-oriented system. And notice they sort of say the motor unit, and they have this colored in, in, in this primary motor cortex colored in black, but this is also shaded because these uh, premotor and prefrontal regions are basically involved in, in the organization and planning of of these actions. And so we have this sensory unit, we have this, more generally speaking, this motor unit, and they combine to not only guide our motor behavior, but also be able to to plan future motor behavior and with that form internal models of action or behavior so that we are able to recapitulate particular patterns of of behavior. So this is crucial. This this sensory um, action coupling, perceptual action coupling, is of course crucial to to learning um, a wide range of behaviors ranging from simple motor actions to more complex behaviors. And of course, as I said, we engage in much more complex behaviors uh, than the amoeba, but similarly, we reach for food substances, we get away from bad, dangerous things, 
Um, we also use this motor behavior um, to engage in social behavior, um, as demonstrated here from Denver, actually, I believe, um, all those years ago. And what's more, <clears throat> our cognitive behavior is really in large part mapped on this kind of perception-action coupling. So we, we you know, Gary Kasparov here is here playing chess. And he's thinking and strategizing what he's going to do. Um, and so he's perceiving the, the uh, pieces on the board. And what he's doing is he's sort of creating in his own mind these sort of series of actions, to, series of, of changes in what he's going to perceive and actions that could be in response to that. And then eventually, after probably hours, deciding on a move that he's going to, that he's going to make. So even these sort of higher level cognitive Thing, uh, tasks that we engage in are dependent upon this sensory action coupling. Now, of course, it's more, it's more complicated, and even this is going to be overly simplistic. We have various sort of levels of hierarchy in terms of this kind of perception action coupling. We have primary motor, sensory cortex, short range connectivity between those regions that are generally involved in sort of more immediate, temporally speaking, more immediate. Um, coupling of perception and action. We have premotor systems with uh, posterior cortical regions involved in sort of more long range and somewhat more complex behaviors, sequencing um, and selecting particular actions and patterns, and then prefrontal posterior cortical that are involved in organizing and planning more complex behaviors, such as I'm going to go to the store now and get a, um, a quart of milk. I'm going to, I can map in my mind the series of organized behavior and planning that I'm going to go through, and it's all a series of actions um, that I'm going to engage in based on these formed internal action models. Um, there's there's reward-based modulation that is coming that modifies this coming uh, uh, through uh, via frontal striatal, frontal basal ganglia circuits, and error-based modulation via of, of these patterns via cerebellar circuits. I'm not going to get into more detail on this, but I just want to sort of touch on sort of the, the general over schema for, for this kind of formation of these internal action models of behavior. Now, in autism, I'm not ready to let go of my triangle yet. I mean, I don't know what to do. Do I form a square or a circle or something now that there's only two like things? So, so this social interaction and communication has been combined, so I'm staying a little bit in DSM-4 here. The idea that there are these impairments in social interaction, communication, stereotype behaviors. Um, what I plan to do and submit to do through this talk is to talk about the fact that there are also clearly in children with autism, in many, many individuals with autism, impairments at the motor skill level. And then relate, and then with that, discuss how those, those patterns of motor skill impairment are interrelated with the core features of autism. And what's more, how there may be underlying abnormalities that contribute simultaneously to the impairments in, in motor skill deficits and the core features that we observe in autism. So the general outline is I'm going to talk about um, particular um, aspects of uh, motor skill impairment in autism. Um, I'm going to give a little bit of the punchline here um, uh, with a focus particularly on impaired impairments in imitation and praxis and, and, and more broadly in the ability to, um, with that and other skills, integrate visual information to guiding motor behavior. 
I'm going to talk about some imaging findings. I'm going to emphasize, uh, if there's time, I'll talk about some anatomic imaging findings, but I particularly want to emphasize some recent exciting fun uh, functional connectivity findings we have. And again, just to sort of hit the punchline, showing that there's decreases in visual motor connectivity in autism and that this is correlated with symptom severity. Um, and then I want to talk about some therapeutic interventions we're thinking about now that have to do with ways of improving imitation and uh, both motor imitation and maybe more generalized that to social imitation um, in autism with the, with the goal of, of really improving the ability to engage in reciprocal social interaction. All right, so motor abnormalities in autism. Not really emphasized by Leo Kanner yet, Anybody here know who Donald Gray Triplett is? I know people here know who Donald Gray Triplett is, right? He was Canner's first case. He is, he is number one. And uh, so there was an article about him that was really interesting in, the, in Atlantic, I believe it was, about three years ago. And it talked about this sort of day in the life with Donald Gray Triplett. And he, he lives in, or I think he's still alive, I'm not sure, down in Mississippi in a small town, and it was very interesting, those people, I know there's a lot of interest here in adult transition and all kinds of stuff, of course there is, um, and there's a lot of interesting stuff in there about, about that and about how the community supports him and how he lives within the community. I recommend the article, it's de definitely a good read. But one of the things that's really interesting, it talks about Donald Gray Triplett likes to go golfing quite a bit, and it talks about Donald Gray Triplett going golfing, and it talks about the very odd patterns of movements he has, how he sort of like walks onto the golf course in this sort of odd waddling gait, how he swings the club, and it, and, it, and it talks about it. So I would submit that even, you know, Leo Kanner's autism case number one, there was evidence, um, or you know, within that, that that there are these motor impairments, while not emphasized. The other thing I want to sort of colloquially emphasize is that is that my experience as a child neurologist, and I think the experience of of many parents and 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 clinicians who work with children with autism, is that it's extremely common, if not almost ubiquitous, that, the, that you hear reports of problems with um, impaired uh, development of um, motor skills at a fairly early age. It's interesting that it's not necessarily observed during the first year of life. Most of the time I hear that like they, children sit up on time and walk on time. When they have to learn more complex pat patterns of behavior, pedaling a tricycle, uh, pumping legs on a swing, uh, various fine motor skills, then I, I almost nearly universally hear that there's a breakdown in that. So, you know, knowing that and observing that as, um, as a child in the clinic, that's one of the things that intrigued me to look more in depth into, into these patterns of abnormality. This, by the way, is my son, my 12-year-old uh, son, obviously not 12 there, uh, when he was two and a half uh, pedaling a tricycle, which is sort of why I put it up there. Plus, it's nice to show pictures of your kids, right? And, um, you know, it's interesting. I was talking to Sally Ozanoff earlier, and I was talking about how Seth is kind of interesting. He's 12 years old, and Seth... Um, uh, well, he might mind me discussing this. Uh, I'm his dad, so I guess I can. He has some issues with, uh, with learning disabilities. Um, but interestingly, definitely not autism. And I will say that this child, from a very early age, imitated to a fault. He used to stand in front of the Wiggles at like a year of age and imitate everything they did on, this, on the screen. Um, so the question could be raised then, you know, that's fine. It's interesting that they have these patterns, but why focus on this? Why study motor function in autism? What's the advantage? Why not just focus on the social function? Well, I would submit, and I think that I'm, I'm hopefully going to convince you through 
much of the discussion in this talk, that motor signs uh, can serve as markers for deficits in parallel systems important for the development of socialization, communication, and other higher order behaviors. I talked about, you know, with my amoeba example and then showing some, some you know, outlining some circuitry in the brain, you know, that there are these sort of parallel systems that are important for various hierarchical representations of actions that are necessary to everything from very simple behaviors to more complex behaviors. This is really crucial in a developmental context because these things are developing in parallel. And it very well may be, and I, I would submit that we have good evidence not only from autism but also from ADHD and other developmental disorders that we've examined motor function in, that, that, that the abnormalities you see at the motor level are, are neighborhood signs, so to speak, are, are parallel to the deficits that you see in, in, with, in social and communication. And therefore, that we, we can get a handle on what's going on within these high, higher order systems by looking at, at the motor system. And why is, uh, and, and I want to say just sort of briefly, just sort of shout out these sort of various notions of embodied cognition, simulation, and active mind, motor theories of social cognition, that have all sort of emphasized these general notions of, of that, that we build these cognitive and behavioral constructs on these sort of, this, these motor systems or, or more, more precisely perceptual motor coupling. So this question could still be asked, well, okay, but that's nice, but why still focus on the motor system? What's the advantage of looking at the motor system? So what I would submit is that, is that the anatomic and physiologic basis of motor function is well understood, well beyond what we understand um, for these higher order social um, and communicative and cognitive uh, functions. And so we can, we can get a handle on exactly what's going on at the physiologic level much easier by looking at motor systems than we can looking at, at other systems. Furthermore, um, uh, motor examination offers an ease and precision not achievable in examination of complex behavior. And what I mean by that is, yes, you could always come up with very reliable metrics of various social behaviors, but... but um, but the validity, the ability to tie these metrics directly to physiologic function is much greater when looking at the, at the motor system. Furthermore, differences can be detected at very early ages in infancy, and there's been evidence that, there are, that they, it can be important predictors of outcome uh, within children with autism. And it serves, as, therefore, as a powerful approach for examining brain behavior correlations and give us an, an ability to um, better understand the nature of the behavioral impairments, oops, the brain basis, and effective therapeutic interventions. All right. So let's start to get into some specific discussion. So there's certainly been a number of studies, including our own, that have looked at sort of motor batteries, that have looked at sort of assessments um, in a very general sense of, of various aspects of basic motor control, gait, posture, balance, speed, coordination. Um, we have contributed to that. We had a paper in 2006, um, was the first paper we reported. We use this battery called the PANS that my mentor Martha Denkla developed. It assesses all these various functions. It, it, it scores them, and we found sure enough, the children with autism, and by the way, we, we divided high-functioning autism and Asperger's syndrome, and we found similar impairments across the two. Um, uh, and we found those impairments in children with autism compared to typically developing children. I do want to pause a second to say, nearly all of what I'm going to discuss is going to focus on f examining these functions and, and, and brain correlates in in children with high-functioning autism and Asperger's syndrome, if you still call it that, 
and um, in, in school-age children, prepubertal ages 8 through 12. Um, the reasons for this are that we, we are better able to examine these things in detail in that population. I would also submit that um, it's certainly crucial to examine, while it's certainly crucial to examine this in a broader range of, of children um, with autism, um, in, the, in that population, there is some specificity to the to the the nature of the deficit. In that there is there is a specific impairment in many of them um, that's prime, that's not there's comorbidities and things, but it's particular um, dysfunction um, in the autism spectrum. In that study that I said in 2006, we actually even found that that the sensitivity and specificity in distinguishing autism in typically developing children based on this motor battery was quite high. Um, and so you have a receiver operating curve here which, which demonstrates that, um, that, that. But this was, this was something where we looked at the sensitivity and specificity of distinguishing children with autism from typically developing children. How is this necessarily uh, um, for distinguishing children with other developmental disorders? Well, I'll tell you that we have a paper in 2012 that we published where we looked at children with ADHD who certainly also have quite often reported to have uh, motor impairments. And we used this PANS battery and looked at children with autism, children with ADHD, and typically developing children. Now, the children with ADHD don't perform in this battery higher scores or worse performance. The children with ADHD don't perform as bad, poorly as the children with autism. But, but at least in this sample of 24 children in each group, we found that both the autism children and the children with ADHD performed worse than the typically developing children. There was no, at least in this sample, significant difference between ADHD and autism. Larger samples, we'd probably see that. But the point is, is that at least as far as looking sort of this overall basic motor control, there seems to be some lack of specificity. However, people have started to look, including ourselves, at, at, at more specific motor impairments. Um, I want to mention a few here um, look, that have examined basic motor control, and then I'm going to get into some more detail on looking at more complex motor actions. So people have looked at, for instance, reaction time, um, doing various tasks in children with autism. Um, and generally, slower and more variable. That's a fairly consistent finding across study, uh, particularly the, uh, across studies, particularly the higher variability. But again, there are similar findings in children with ADHD um, with regard to looking at reaction times. Um, as just one example of another, another developmental disorder in which there's motor dysfunction. Um, where there is maybe some more specificity is in reaching actions, um, and what's interesting and sort of gets to sort of sort of some of the punchline that I talked about is that in looking at reaching actions, uh, there was a recent study that looked at the ability, uh, at, at, at the adjustment of uh, planning reaching movements um, based on visual input, based on um, the perceived sti uh, uh, stimulus that they were responding to, and actually there was this, the, the, the findings suggested that children with autism had poor adjustment of reaching to visual input when planning these movements. Um, in addition, um, for reach to grasp, um, there was a decreased interference of visual distractors during reach to grasp in children with autism, suggesting that visual input is not affecting their reach to grasp um, visual interference as much um, as typically developing children. And also some, uh, a finding from uh, a decade or more ago uh, that's suggesting that reaching and grasping are uncoupled. And the coupling of reaching and grasping is dependent upon the visual input. If I close my eyes and I try to grasp something, I, ha I can't I don't have that sort of opening in my hand in advance to reach to get the object, except for the extent of which I have visual memory of it. I have to sort of touch it and then, 
and, uh, and then um, open my hand. So Reaching and Grasping, there's actually a nice review article on this in Frontiers of uh, Neuroscience about a month or two ago on reaching and grasping um, and, and how vision is necessary to the coupling of, of those two movements. And it was found to be uncoupled, actually, um, in the previous study. What I want to focus a little bit more on um, in, in the coming minutes is, is talking about some examination that we've done of impaired skilled motor performance and that other people have done a skilled motor performance. Now, as you know, and certainly I'm in a place that should definitely know this, um, there's been a particular emphasis on, on, motor, on motor imitation. Um, and impairments in motor imitation in children with autism. Now, I am not by any means going to get into a detailed discussion of, of and review of motor in, imitation in autism, um, particularly in the interest of time, but also you have experts here who could certainly give you a much better lecture on that than I can. But, so, but just generally, I want to sort of talk about the fact that imitation has been examined, looking at sort of spontaneous imitation, Looking at mimicry and emulation, um, you know, do do children with autism actually just generally copy um, and uh, the actions of of other people when performed spontaneously? But what I'm going to focus on, and what certainly um, some work here um, has focused on, is is examination of elicited imitation otherwise referred to as motor imitation, where you're really <clears throat> asking children to imitate a very specific action. And sometimes this has been referred to as um, when do- doing this with meaningless gestures, which this kind of is here, um, as, as true imitation. Um, there have been a number of findings, con- of, of consistent findings of impaired imitation, of non-meaningful gestures, as well as, for that matter, meaningful gestures. Um, um, in autism, I am listing a number of them up there, but, uh, but this has been a fairly consistent finding uh, over decades now. So the neurologic basis of imitation um, rests in, again, this sort of coupling of visual input with motor action. Um, and at the center of all this, and, and crucial to all of this, is connection between inferior parietal regions, thought to be important, and particularly in the left hemisphere, and thought to be important for the um, representations of the perceptual, sort of the higher order representations uh, that are coming from visual input, of um, the, the spatial and temporal characteristics of the movement. And coupling that with motor systems that are important for planning and sequencing the actual actions, which then signal the primary motor cortex, which then triggers, triggers the action. So yes, this has been emphasized as it's in, in imitation work and sort of has been you know, sort of now referred to often as the mirror neuron system. However, this is a system that was discussed long before these notions of mirror neuron. Um, and this, it is you know, understood that this mirror neuron system is really embedded within a more general fundamental visual motor processing stream necessarily to translating oops, visual input into motor outputs. Um, and so this is, and, and for one, and in particular, that this, is, this very system, this very connections between the inferior parietal and premotor systems has been emphasized for decades in study of praxis. So praxis, this impaired ability to perform skilled motor actions, um, including learned skilled motor actions, um, such as commutative gestures, which are referred to as intransitive, um, so that's something like Waldo there, waving goodbye, as well as transitive um, tool use gestures, um, here's a lefty um, uh, using a hammer, um, are 
are examined, um, and, and in people who have um, dyspraxia, they have impairment in the ability to perform these kind of skilled actions. It's assessed, generally assessed, by looking at their ability to perform these gestures to command with imitation and with the actual tool use. Um, um, in the, some of the data that I'm going to show you um, over the next few minutes, what we do when we do this is we videotape the children performing these actions, and we do very detailed coding of the specific error types that they make. Um, I won't go through all the errors in the interest of time, but various spatial errors, how, they, how they're emulating gripping the tool, or pantomiming, I should say, gripping the tool, or imitating, or actually gripping the tool, how they're relating that to the, the imagined external object, um, et cetera. Um, and so we code those errors, and um, we uh, and, um, have found consistently across a number of studies, and other groups have found this as well, Deborah Dewey, for instance, that there is, are these deficits not only in imitation, but also with pantomime and tool use on praxis testing. And this has led to a, a, a general notion that, that um, among children with autism, that there seems to be at least a substantial portion of children with autism that demonstrate this developmental dyspraxia. So as an example here, here's sort of an example of the kind of thing we do where we're asking the child to perform a gesture to command. So here's a typically developing child, and we're asking them to, him to uh, demonstrate how to erase a chalkboard. And there he goes, doing just fine. And here's the child with autism. You'll see that he does a body part for tool error. He uses his hand as the eraser, and then there's this very inconsistent relationship with the, the board, and so-called uh, external configuration error. Um, we also do meaningless gestures, and so we have them imitate these actual actions. We'll do things like hammering nail and racing truck, but we have them imitate these kind of meaningless gestures as well, this voguing maneuver, so that this child, so this typically developing child is doing just fine. And you'll see in the same child with autism that there's sort of this complete breakdown of the ability to imitate, imitate this gesture. Um, so which hand to use is unclear, and then there's this, and then there's this, completely um, inconsistent ability to, to or, or in, in, inability to perform this gesture. So we've, we've done this, we've, we do this detailed coding in these videos, and we, this is from the first study we ever published, so that's why it looks like an old figure, but we've had a number of figures since then, where you have the children with autism here in, in this is percent correct on the y-axis, the children with autism, here's gestures to command, gestures to imitation, tool use, and across all three they show, uh, they show substantial impairments compared to typically developing children. And I will mention with gestures to imitation that at least we have found that they show impairments, equivalent impairments in, in both the meaningful and non-meaningful gestures. What's more is that we have been finding that this is specific, at least in some, to some degree, to autism. So now we go back to the same study where we had typically developing children, children with ADHD, children with autism, higher scores are better, percent correct on the y-axis, and we found, find that the children with autism are significantly worse not only than typically developing children, but also children with ADHD with no difference between the ADHD and TD group on the performance of praxis, and this was true of the subsets of the praxis too, including the gestures to imitation. So it suggests that this sort of model that, that if there are these problems with, with learning these skilled gestures, that, that in autism, 
there may be a problem more broadly with learning skills, skill, various skill gestures, including the skill gestures necessary to engage in social interactions. After all, we call them social skills. We don't call them social facts. They are, they are actually learning, and to some degree, to a large degree implicitly, these actions that are necessary for engaging in social interaction. Furthermore, and I think I'm talking about something here that many of you understand and know, that, the, that, this, that with this mirror neuron notion, that the brain uses the same internal models um, to perform skill motors actions, not only as skill motor uh, behaviors, oops, uh, um, oops, right, so let me start with that, that there is that notion that these things may be interrelated, and we have, we have actually found, and this is from the second study we did on Praxis that we found, where we actually then went and examined this association, and we found this association between percent correction on praxis and total ADOS scores with higher ADOS scores associated with poor praxis performance. Um, uh, so what's more, these, this, this system, this, um, con these connections that are necessary for imitation and praxis are not only, are, are certainly important for the inter informing these internal models of action, um, but they're also important not only for forming models necessary for forming the skilled motor actions, but the brain also uses these same internal models in a feed-forward manner to understand the intents of others. So I can look around the room now, no pressure here, I can look around the room now and I can tell who's particularly interested in my talk right now and who's not. Why can I tell that? Because I can look at your facial expression and I know when I do those facial expressions what I'm thinking. And so we use that system, we use that ability to, um, th that, uh, that ability to detect these sort of gestures in others and, and understand, like, if I go like this, you'll say, oh, you're hammering a nail, or at least pretending to hammer a nail. Or if I go like this, you'll say, oh, he's pretending to brush his teeth. Because you have your own internally formed model of these behaviors. Um, so that this internal model, formation of these internal models of actions are not only crucial for performing actions, but understanding other people's actions. And we can actually assess this at the, at the level of praxis in children with autism as well. So we can look at things like, for example, using a postural knowledge test that Leslie Gonzalez, Rothy, and Heilman have used for, for a while now in looking at praxis, and ask, well, can children with autism just simply recognize what is the correct gesture? Forget about even performing it. Can they recognize what the correct gesture is here? Obviously, A is the answer here. And sure enough, we find in children with autism that they are impaired in, in doing this and compared to typically developing children, as well as children with ADHD, with no impairment uh, in children with ADHD, uh, no difference between the children with ADHD and the children with autism. So there seems to be this impairment in autism, at least at the level of praxis, of not only with the ability to perform the skill gestures, but also to be able to recognize those, those actions as performed by others, and, um, and that we're not seeing either of those impairments in ADHD, children with ADHD, despite the fact that they have problems with sort of more basic aspects of motor control. So what I would submit sort of from the autism theoretical, con theoretical construct is that, that we have this interrelationship of abnormalities in postural knowledge and praxis, and that similarly we have we have an interrelationship and abnormalities in social awareness and social skill. And that the formation of these internal models of action, at least for some children with autism, may, this may be key to understanding why they have these impairments, um, both in the ability to perform these skills as well as the ability to recognize and understand these actions as performed by others. 
And so this raises the question of whether at least, and I recognize, and I'll say as the caveat that obviously is necessary to say because it's true, is that autism is a very heterogeneous diagnosis. And so, um, so this is certainly not necessarily true for all children with autism. But I would submit that there may be a large, substantial portion of children with autism where there is a dyspraxia for social skills, where that what is contributing to their impaired social skill and social awareness is this abnormal performance. Uh, this is an abnormal uh, or anomalous pattern of, of formation of the internal action models. And I would also submit that this is sort of what is the shake hand diagnosis aspect of autism. So uh, the all of us as clinicians and in, in those involved in clinical research know that, you know, there's a large aspect of sort of like you meet a person and, you know, you meet a child and you can sort of get a sense of whether they're on the spectrum pretty quickly. Yes, we should do the ADOS and all that. And I would submit that that's what you're getting a sense of. You're getting a sense of right away of like how good are they at sort of performing that skill, that social skill. So I want to talk, touch on for, uh, for several minutes now on then looking at sort of what may then be the underpinnings of this. This is a developmental disorder. And so how they learn, how they acquire these internal action models is important to understand. And I think we've had some really exciting breakthrough findings which suggest to us what may be anomalous about the patterns of this skill learning in children with autism. So just as sort of a general background, and this is an oversimplification, but, but a, a generally true construct, there are two general patterns of learning that our brain engages in, and these things certainly interrelate to each other, um, but, um, uh, but we have declarative learning of conscious explicit facts and events. Um, this is the nice thing about declarative learning um, is, well, let's start with the bad thing about declarative learning. The bad thing about declarative learning is that it's, it, it can be very transient. We've all experienced this. We've crammed for tests. We've memorized a bunch of facts. We take the tests. We hopefully do well, and a week later, we don't remember half of it. Um, if that. Um, the nice thing about declarative learning, though, is, is that it's flexible. Okay, so I could say to you now, I can, if I give you a real, get, get, give you a really good convincing argument that the Declaration of Independence was signed in 1775, despite all that you've learned in the past, and then I gave you the test, and I was the one giving you the test, and I asked you that question: When was the Declaration of Independence signed? And you knew I was grading it. You would write 17, uh, you would write 1775. So you were very easily able to, to, to. to you know, to erase the old fact or at least, at least replace it with a new piece of knowledge. Procedural learning is, is advantageous in that, is that it's, it's hardwired, it stays there for a very long time, it's like riding a bike, right? So these things are very hardwired. Um, the, the problem with it is that it's very hardwired, so it's inflexible. I'll give you a quick story. Oh, I probably shouldn't, but I'm going to do it anyway. So I learned to, so I swam as a kid. I wasn't very good. I was, I mean, I was good. I wasn't very good. I didn't swim competitively or anything. About a few years ago, I started swimming regularly, and my wife was taking, actually, at, at Meadowbrook Swim Club, where Michael Phelps swims, um, and, you know, Baltimore, and so we, um, so I'm swimming in a lane, and my wife's taking a lesson with Miss Annie, and she's teaching her, and she, and she, she didn't know us at that time. It was the first lesson. And she, she points, my wife told me this after, that she pointed to me during the lesson and said, now you see him? You, yeah, yeah, terrible. Don't swim like him. He's like, you know. And what happened, and over, I then actually started taking lessons with Miss Annie. And as everybody calls her, um, she's like, 
55 years old. Anyway, so she, she uh, so Miss Annie and I, it took me a while, but I did reform that pattern, and I'm actually a much better swimmer now. But it took a while. It takes a while to, to reform that. Okay, so vote. So I would, you know, so. So procedural learning is social skills. So you know, I would again submit first of all that they are social skills and not social facts, and that what what people are learning and children are learning are to execute a series of complex movements and gestures. I'll also say as an aside that individuals with autism, and we've all heard this from children, from parents of children with autism, that they sometimes will report an inability to automatically perform social gestures and sometimes compensate by using declarative scripts. They'll sort of tell themselves, oh, when I'm in this social situation, I'm supposed to do this. In fact, Temple Grandin, I think she's gotten better, you know, certainly, is that, is, is that but when I first met her about, oh God, nearly 20 years ago now, she told me that when she got into a social situation and somebody stuck out their hand, she actually had to prompt herself with a, oh, somebody's sticking out their hand. I need to stick out my hand too. That there are these sort of declarative scripts that are used to compensate for the lack of that automat- automaticity. And of course, then there's the sort of notion of inactive minds that I won't get into um, uh, much more. So I want to talk about a specific motor task that we've done that has really been uh, quite revealing. So we decided to look at motor learning and start by looking at motor adaptation. So in this task, then this is Courtney Haswell, who was the first author in the, on the first paper that we published on this. Um, in this task, the, the subject grips a joystick. They cannot see the joystick itself. They see a cursor on the screen that is tied to the joystick wherever it goes. Although I'll talk to you about an experiment where we uncoupled it in a few minutes. So what happens is, is that you see this cursor and we made a game out of it and said that, okay, you have to catch these animals. They've escaped from the zoo, and you have to go catch them. And so we had the subject moves. And first, they just sort of learn to sort of move to the target and hit the target in a sort of timely fashion. And then it lights up, and they know that they hit it in a timely fashion. But then what we start doing is we, um, we start perturbing the, the, the arm via the joystick. So they're reaching towards the target. And then what happens is they get perturbed. They get pushed to the side, exactly perpendicular to the plane that they're reaching. Okay? And the, when they, in this experiment, they did it initially in their left workspace. Okay? And they're getting pushed to the side. And they then have to learn to compensate for that. Okay? So they have to learn to adapt their movement to compensate for that, that um, per- perturbation. And so what we looked at initially was just sort of the adaptation rate. And... Children with autism generally adapt fine, and we eventually also looked at children with ADHD, and and this is sort of from a follow-up paper, but you see, here's the initial perturbation, here's sort of the after several trials, and here's after a bunch of trials. And you could see that they gradually learn to sort of compensate, and they all, you see very similar patterns, and the learning is intact and generally intact in children with autism, although a little bit slower a little bit slower and this sort of if you look at this particular area it's significantly different from the other two groups but not dramatically there's nothing dramatic here clearly ADHD uh, children by the way learn at the exact same rate ADHD children are much more variable though I won't get into that but that's a you know obviously as, as though many of you know a story in ADHD all right 
Um, but then what we do is after they learned that in their left workspace, we move them over to the right workspace, okay? When they're learning to adapt in their left workspace, there's one of two ways they, they could be learning, and it's generally a combination of the two. There's one of two sensory feedbacks that they could be relying on. One is proprioception. Okay, so proprioception is your sense of where your body is in space. It's why when I close my eyes, I can do this and touch my nose because I know where my hand is in space. You're getting feedback from your muscles, from muscle spindles that, that tell you what very precise ways where your body position is. The other is visual. They see the cursor and they see the perturbation and they, could, they can map it visually as well. So what we did is we then looked at how they generalized what they learned in their left workspace to the right workspace. And we looked at two coordinate systems, an extrinsic a generalization to an extrinsic coordinate system that exactly matched what they were seeing visually in the left workspace. But you could see if you move like that, if I'm moving here and now I'm moving here, my arm coordinates are very different. So we also matched to a, to a, a coordinate system that matched the intrinsic coordinate, uh, uh, feedback from, their, from proprioception. And what we found was that the children with autism First of all, their end adaptation rates as measured by the force that they were exhibiting was very similar to typically developing children. However, the generalization patterns were very distinct. They showed much more generalization in intrinsic proprioceptive coordinate system and less generalization in visual system. And so that the general conclusion was that when forming these internal models of behavior, children with autism um, rely more on proprioceptive feedback from their own um, internal body space, their own body schema, and less on what's going on in the external world. And this makes sense heuristically, even sort of like thinking about why it's called autism. I mean, these children are perhaps relying, when they form these action models, are relying overly too much on what's going on in their own world, so to speak, in their own body, and not enough on what's going on and the feedback they're getting from the external world. And when we think about how we learn social skills and how we learn socialization, it is, in large part, through this visual motor mapping, uh, through imitation um, and other similar means of what, what we're perceiving in the external world. What's more is we found in a follow-up study that children with ADHD here shown in green showed a very similar pattern to the typically developing children and not the children, and as opposed to the children with autism, suggesting some specificity for this finding. And what's more, in the original study, we found that this tendency to rely on proprioceptive intrinsic feedback as opposed to visual feedback was correlated with impairments in imitation as well as other aspects of praxis pretty similarly across the board. Uh, so gestures to command and gesture with tool use. And it was also correlated with, uh, with the social interaction score from the ADOS within children with autism and across the two groups, the SRS. Um, so we've now done, the thing is that, you know, we looked at generalization here. It was a little bit of an indirect way, as you sensed, I'm sure, of looking at proprioceptive versus visual feedback. So we wanted to look at this more directly, and, and very quickly what we've done now is we've done an experiment where we're dissociating the visual and proprioceptive feedback. So, for example, there might be a case in this, in this situation where they're feeling the force perturbation at one of three levels. They're feeling their arm being pushed over as they're reaching, but they see no perturbation at all. The cursor goes straight ahead. 
So we looked at what happened when we sort of did this mismatching in typically developing children and children with autism. So for example, in that zero visual error condition, as one would expect based on our previous findings, we're finding that the children with autism, their learning is hardly impacted. That the, the fact that they're getting no visual error, they're getting no real visual feedback, they learn just fine. The typically developing children, however, are dramatically impacted by that lack of visual error um, and that dissociation between the visual and proprioceptive error. So that when we map sensitivities, we see that the children with autism show, shown here in red show higher error sensitivity to proprioceptive error, whereas the children with um, typically developing children show higher sensitivity to visual error. I just want to sort of... Um, in wrapping up the behavioral, and then I want to touch on the imaging, and I'm just going to touch on one imaging finding here. I know I'm going a little late. That the uh, that there are um, that as I mentioned, um, that there are some of these findings from reach to grasp that suggest abnormalities in use of visual feedback as well to guide motor behavior. I will also say that that Wyatt and Craig, and we have a paper now that's in under was un, reviewed once. It looks good. We're going back in soon. That shows when we look at a series of skills that children with motor with autism have to engage in. We use the motor ABC, the MAVC. Catching is something that particularly distinguishes children impairments in catching um, from not only ch typically developing children, but children with uh, ADHD. So it seems that there's something specific about that rapid visual motor integration that's impaired. And of course, there's the impaired motor imitation that's been described. So the interim conclusions from the behavior is that autism seems to be associated with anomalous patterns of motor development, um, with dyspraxia, imitation, and visual motor integration impairments. With this, and that they show in motor learning a, a, an abnormal reliance on proprioceptive intrinsic feedback from their own bodies and less on feedback from the external world. And we now have two separate you know, tests that we've done to examine that that's, that are consistent in those findings. And that this, this bias towards proprioceptive-based learning and the tendency to discount visual feedback is associated with autism impairments in not only motor function, but also social function. So where do we go from here? We want to look at heterogeneity. We want to, um, uh, of course, so we want to look at a broad, broader phenotype and, um, and, and also... Uh, and potentially look at genotypic associations as well. So what are the potential specific clinical features associated with these impairments? Are there genotypic associations? Um, are, we, are we going to see this impairment in a broader range of children? Um, we also, uh, you know, one thing that has not been adequately examined, and I think, you know, the, 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 this is recognized by a number of you, is that there really hasn't been good examination of the impairments in motor and social imitation and how, how closely those things are, uh, are tied. And then, what are, then, of course, what are the neurologic underpinnings and the therapeutic implications? All right, let me talk about one really exciting finding that we have just coming out now that we just submitted this paper um, looking at functional connectivity patterns in, in autism. So functional connectivity um, refers to the common, the, well, it's done, you, you use F, fMRI, you look at the time courses of within particular regions of the brain, how the signal changes over time, um, and then you look at where there's commonalities in those patterns of signal change. And for regions where there's commonality, those regions are considered to be functionally connected. So the, 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 the signal patterns are fluctuating in a similar way. They're considered to be functionally connected. If they're not, they're not 
considered to be functionally connected. So she, we wanted to ask and use this, in a very, this method in a very hypothesis-driven way to ask the question, do children with autism show decreased visual motor connectivity? Is decreased visual motor connectivity associated with motor and social skill impairment? And can we enhance visual motor connectivity and in doing so improve social skills with autism? So I'm going to talk about the first two questions and the third question is something we have to move to in the future. I'm a South Park fan. They made these slides for me, my, my fellows. But, but I won't, in the interest of time, get too much into sort of the, this notion. People have, pe when people do functional connectivity analysis, the most common method of doing it is something called seed-based analysis. You actually pick particular regions in the brain. You, pick, you, you identify them in everybody's brain, every, every subject's brain, and then you look at the connectivity patterns. The problem with seed-based um, we use it plenty, but just to talk about its limitations is, is that it can be hard to identify those particular regions, and the, the, the exact localization of a particular region may be variable, extremely variable, in, from one subject to another. So there is this other approach called independent component analysis, and so this is sort of the, the cocktail party is problem, is sort of how to dissociate different people's speech patterns in a cocktail party is sort of independent components can be used for that. But basically, the way the method, the method works is that we look at the time courses, and we just sort of let the data speak for itself and generate components um, that, in, that, are, that are described in spatial maps where the time courses are naturally falling out that they're, they're similar. I should mention, I did not mention, that this is functional connectivity that we're looking in resting state fMRI. Um, one of the things we want to do in the future, and I'll mention that, is look at task-based and look at these differences in task-based. But here we're do, looking at resting state fMRI. The children are lying still in the scanner, eyes open, staring at a crosshair. Okay. So this study, we had 50 children with autism, uh, 50 TD children, uh, very nicely matched on all sorts of things. Um, when we did, when we, I, when we pulled out the components. We, I won't get into the methods that identify the, the best way of identifying the number of components. We identified 53 components. A third of those are actually noise. But then looking at the patterns, of the, the spatial maps, we identified two specific motor components and three visual components. And this sort of demonstrated here. Um, in red and blue, we have the motor component. We have a more ventral motor component. You can see there's also um, aspects of uh, thalamic striatal as well as cerebellar. There's also um, a more dorsal motor component um, where there's also a cerebellar aspect to this. And then we have three hierarchically, three visual components. Um, uh, so uh, one, two, three that sort of hierarchically are sort of more basic moderate and sort of higher order visual components. Um, when we look at the associations between those two, and so here's sort of showing all the data with all the points on showing you all, all the work here, we find one in particular that is dissociated between children with autism, and this is the actually higher order motor com uh, visual component, excuse me, with this ventral motor component. And what's interesting is, is this is sort of most akin to sort of the regions that have been emphasized in motor imitation in practice. When we corrected for multiple comparisons, six years, strict Bonferroni correction, we still find a very robust difference between, between um, autism and typically developing children um, in this visual motor connectivity. Furthermore, what we find is that this is, and I talked about this earlier briefly, is that we 
we find a fairly robust association with um, measures of, of this uh, social responsiveness scale, uh, measure of autism uh, phenotype severity. Um, we'd see no association in the typically developing, but as you can see, they all have very low scores. Um, so we see this fairly robust association with lower visual motor connectivity being associated with higher or more, Im more impairment on the SRS. And what's more, when we look at the individual scales, we see this pretty ubiquitous association. So this was not driven by one particular aspect. We see that, 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 that we see uh, at least a trend level association um, with, with all of these subscales from the um, SRS um, that are all then contributing to the overall um, association. Now, what's also interesting is that when we look at praxis and imitation, and they're similar for both, I'll show the imitation graph, but basically it's very similar. We find this association where more visual motor connectivity is associated with better praxis at fairly robust levels, but only in the typically developing children. So it suggests that as part of normal development, this visual motor connectivity may be crucial to learning these skills in children with autism and imitating these, these actions in children with autism. I'm sorry, excuse me, in typically developing children. But in children with autism, it may be that there's a breakdown in the system and therefore they have to rely on other means in order to acquire these, these, these skills. Um, so... Um, so we have these general conclusions, um, you know, asking the question, is the anomalous pattern of motor control and learning autism associated with abnormal patterns of neuroconnectivity? I won't talk about this, some anatomic imaging findings, but as far as the functional connectivity findings, we found this de differences in visual motor connectivity, this decrease in uh, a particular aspect of visual motor connectivity, and it was associated with the core social communicative um, um, and other autism phenotype impairments in, in children with autism and uh, associated with imitation practice in typically developing children but not children with autism. So there's a number of future directions we want to go with this. Understanding what is the specific nature of impaired visual motor connectivity. Um, one, you know, visual motor systems are connected. I showed you sort of in the cerebral cortex how they're connected, but they're also visual motor integration is a key part of what happens in certain aspects of cerebellum. The cerebellum. So it may be that the, the abnormality is really more cerebellar based than cerebral based. Um, what specific patterns of functional connectivity are associated with imitation and practice in autism, since we did not see this visual motor association in autism, but rather in typically de developing children? Is this reduced visual motor, uh, visual motor connectivity seen during performance of, of visual motor skills? So we do not just resting state, but actual task-based. And then are we going to see it at younger ages? Um, and uh, that's something we're very excited to potentially um, uh, look at. The last thing I want to touch in, um, so just give me five minutes here, is therapeutic implications. So we have this sort of bias towards proprioception, this discounting of visual input. What does it say about how we should teach children with autism skills? So one possibility is that we play to the strength. We say, oh, they're really good at relying on proprioception. Let's get them to rely more on proprioception. And that may be good for particular skills where that kind of feedback um, would be use can be useful. So for example, handwriting. 
We, a lot of times, learn how to form letters by watching the teacher or somebody write it on the board or write it on a paper, and we kind of imitate that action. But might it be better to sort of teach children with autism who often have handwriting impairments, and we had a study on this, and I was pursuing further more detailed studies on this that I don't have time to get into, showing that they have problems with handwriting and problems particularly with forming letters. So might it be better to sort of give them more proprioceptive feedback through various means to improve their motor, their motor performance. I won't get into details about that, but we have some ideas about how you might do that. I'll also mention, going backwards, that, that teaching sign language. That's often done through imitation. And it may be that for children with autism, this ha a hand-over-hand -hand approach, where you actually move their hands into the position, may be more advantageous. And there was, I am aware, but it was never really written up at um, New Mexico State, I believe. There was a postdoc fellow who actually looked at this and actually did find some suggestion that, that children with autism were particularly advantaged by that hand-over-hand -hand approach. The problem with these kind of approaches is that in teaching, they may be useful for teaching particular motor skills, but teaching social skills, hard to do through proprioception. Maybe particular gestures, such as signs or other, other specific gestures that you might be able to teach them how to perform better. But if we're really going to get them to sort of more better acquire these kind of skills through imitation and other visual motor means, we really need to try to leverage neuroplasticity to increase visual motor connectivity, potentially through brain stimulation. But what I want to focus on talking about right now is some um, ideas that we have for behavioral methods. Specifically, when we look, when, when P, Wyatt and Craig, who I mentioned earlier, are finding that, like us, that the children with autism are particularly impaired in catching balls, requiring rapid visual motor integration, they did an experiment where they slowed down the presentation using a ramp of the ball and had some suggestion in that study that if slowing down the, 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 the ball was particularly advantageous for the children with autism. Makes sense. So we wonder if, if if we could slow down the visual presentation, might they better be able to imitate? And then what we can do is we could do a graduated approach where we speed things up and see if we can get them to imitate better. So what we're thinking about doing now is, um, is doing, um, using Connect systems and doing this task called Just Dance. So the child's supposed to imitate all these actions and, like, and you actually get, you have sensors and you could, you could detect how they're, they're doing and performing the imitation. So what, what if we now can do something where we really slow it down and see if we can get the children, and they'll like this because they're doing better, they're, like, they're getting rewarded for their better performance, and we can slow it down and see if we can get them to start to imitate better. The main goal here really, in part it's behavioral, well let's get them to imitate, but really what we're trying to think about doing here is priming this visual motor system. Can we get them to engage in this fun activity that really sort of gets at Hebbian notions of, of rewiring the brain and neuroplasticity and really see if we can get them, get them to improve visual motor connectivity through these kind of games and with that improve imitation and then you know, during the performance of this kind of task but then more generally in, in a generalized atmosphere where they can, where they can um, where they can uh, potentially acquire, better acquire social skills in a more naturalistic setting. So I'm going to end there. Here's my various acknowledgments, many, many, many of them who contributed to this and the support from Autism Speaks and NIH for this research. Here's my children, um, Seth and Holden, a bit older, still from a few years ago. Um, and thank you very much for having me. 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.